When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Micro. I'm Drew Hawkins, and this episode is part of an interview series for Miami Book Fair, where members of Team Micro, that's myself, Dylan Evers, Maymay Kaufman, and Kirsten Renault, interview authors appearing at the fair about their work. For more information about their programming and to check out the incredible roster of authors appearing this year, visit MiamiBookFair.com. And be sure to follow them at Miami Book Fair and hashtag Miami Book Fair 2022 for more updates. Now, back to the show. Welcome to Micro. I'm Drew Hawkins, and today I'm speaking with New York Times bestselling author Jess Walter. We'll be discussing his latest book, his ninth work of fiction, a collection titled The Angel of Rome and Other Stories, out now from HarperCollins. To start the show, we've asked him to select and read a passage from the book. So here's Jess Walter reading an excerpt from Town and Country, one of the stories featured in the collection. Enjoy. It's one of the hardest decisions you can make, putting a parent in a nursing home. We started visiting places, something garden and whatever glen, but each one seemed worse than the last. I asked the director of one facility if there was a place dad could go to smoke or to have a cocktail now and then. He sputtered and said that wasn't possible. But these, I said, were the only things that still gave dad any joy. Not even one cigarette or a nightcap before bed. He looked at me like I was crazy. Legally, we could never allow that. Then, as we were leaving that place, something manner, the janitor sidled up. I'd seen him mopping outside the office. He grabbed Dad by the arm. He was short and bald with a ruddy nose. His eyes went in different directions. There is a place, he said, his voice a golemy rasp. Town and country up north, my sister is there. He repeated it for emphasis. Town and country. So one Saturday, I threw Dad in the car, and we drove north on Highway 95, straight up the long spine of Idaho. The town and country, it turned out, was an old motor inn built in the 1950s near a town called State Line. It was basically the same sprawling, seedy motel it had always been. There was a carport fronting the lobby, and behind that, a chop house lounge with no windows, a small stage, and smoke-stained carpeting halfway up the walls. The staff at the town and country were dressed not like orderlies or nurses, but like employees of a 1960s hotel, 
women in waitress dresses, men in high-collared blue jackets and gendarme hats. Skip, the director of the town and country, was three shades of gray stacked on top of one another. He had started this place for his parents, who ran a saloon in an old Idaho mining town. They weren't cut out for the kind of place where Grammy does art projects, he said. The town and country had a simple, respectful ethos. The elderly folks were not decrepit patients, but hotel guests checked into one of the 40 rooms. A few of those rooms were reserved for couples, but most of the guests were singles, widows or widowers. They could do whatever they wanted in their rooms, smoke, drink, watch TV. But in a nod to nostalgia, the TVs only had four channels and the phones were rotary dialed. A continental breakfast was served each morning in the lobby from 5 a.m. to noon, although if the guests became non-ambulatory, food could be delivered for a room service fee. Anything extra at the town and country was tacked on the bill, just like at a hotel. Laundry, meds, haircut, all were arranged for a fee. There was no group therapy, no activity rooms, no sing-alongs, no craft projects. There were only two things every day, continental breakfast and beginning at 3.30, dinner and happy hour in the lounge. This is what we are most proud of, Skip said. And with a flourish, he produced a thick menu and handed it to my dad. The food was straight out of my childhood. Roast and potatoes, pork chops and applesauce, French dip, Monte Cristo. And the prices. You could have a London broil and a baked potato for $4. You could have goulash or spaghetti and meatballs for two fifty. Skip saw my smile. The prices make them very happy. The actual price, which you'll get on your monthly bill, is approximately four to five times that. The bar menu is just as amazing. A screwdriver for $2, Tom Collins for two fifty, beer for 75 cents. Our beers are six ounces and we make really weak cocktails, Skip said. We also break up medication and serve it in non-alcoholic drinks, basically soda or tonic water. They don't mind taking their Coumadin when it comes in a martini glass. I looked over. Dad was staring at the menu like it was a time travel portal. He's been having this other issue, I said. His uh, libido. Skip nodded and chose his words carefully. The dominant model for elder care focuses, of course, on longevity and health. But this can be at the cost of what I would call personal choice. At the town and country, we want to preserve personal choice. Which means, he smiled and I saw a black eye tooth. We go through a lot of penicillin. It was unbelievable, like a rat-packed nursing home. As if to punctuate that, Dad slammed the menu down on Skip's desk and said, I'll have the fish and chips and a scotch and soda. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. That's, sure. really, that's a really great uh, passage. And that's what I want to ask first is, why uh, did you choose that passage and from that story specifically, uh, you know, it's funny when you're when you're writing a story. There are all these different little origin stories you tell yourself, but this one for me is so straightforward. My dad, who died recently, had Alzheimer's, and as I was looking for a place, I just wished this place existed. I don't think I've ever written a short story before out of wish fulfillment. Uh, the idea that if I wrote the town and country 
the kind of place my dad would feel at home that it might exist. You know, he would have been so comforted by a rotary telephone and four channels on his television and a $2 cocktail and, uh, you know, and mashed potatoes and roast. And so it, uh, this was a way to read a section that just talked really simply about what that story is about, which is the kind of nursing home I wish existed. Mm. You know, kind of building off of that, can you, walk us through a little bit of your creative process in general, um, how you prepare for and approach a new story, a new book, and maybe a little bit how that compares to when you're approaching a collection of stories rather than a singular novel. Yeah, I think with a collection of stories, often they're written. Uh, And so I had maybe 45 or 50 short stories that I had written between 2013 and now. Um, almost all of which have been published somewhere. And so it was looking through and not only finding my favorite stories, but stories that felt to me like they fit, that didn't repeat. Um, sometimes for me, I'll write a, a story and it's almost like that melody is still in my head and I write it again and try to get it right this time. So mm-hmm. I had four or five stories that really repeated. Um, and then and then I always try to write at least one maybe new story to go in the collection. and. Um, and for me, that's much different than a novel. The, 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 the act, the daily act itself of writing is really probably no different. You know, you're, I'm driven by a line or a character or situation. And I kind of write through that. And that, that happens with stories and with novels, but with a novel, that engagement is years. Um, and it, and the, there's something very physical about writing a novel. It's like running a marathon. You, you know, and even, even when I'm starting a new novel, I have to ask myself, all right, am I up for this? Am I in the right kind of shape? And I think for me, writing short stories keeps me in shape in between those novels, but I can really tell the physical difference in the two. So that's the sprint training building into the longer marathon training. Yeah, sort of. Yeah. I've also used the, uh, the handy metaphor of dating that uh, writing a short story is like going on dates and writing a novel is like having a relationship. You're going to have to meet the novel's parents and um, right, right. You know, figure out whose stuff goes in which drawer. You're going to have to live with that novel and make compromises and mm. find your way through it. Uh, sometimes a story can just be like a great date. Like that was so fun. We went mm. to a movie and then, uh, you know, we uh, went for a walk along the, along the beach and, so for me, short stories can be really great fun in that way, whereas novels tend to have that deeper commitment. Mm. Would you say that it's it's accurate to say that when you're putting together a collection, is it more of a curating process of stories that you've written? Did you Do you write some of these stories with the intention that they'll be part of a collection? Is that on your mind when you're approaching a story? It's not on my mind. I'm, I have the thrill and sort of terror of doing an event with George Saunders later. And, um, and when I read a George Saunders collection or a Karen Russell collection, it does feel to me like the pieces are being written uh, for, for a collection. I think, I think in hindsight, I did feel a through line that, that pulled me through the angel of Rome. I, I was feeling like I wanted to write stories to see if it was possible without violating my literary principles to find some hope. Mm-hmm. And so when I looked back, the stories I chose were those stories that 
um, they don't have happy endings by any means, but they they do look for a measure of hope in what I think is kind of a difficult time for people. Mm. And to ask yourself, can you do that without, um, you know, blowing all of your literary cool? Mm. <laughs> you know, it's like you were in a punk band and now you want to write melodies and uh, longer songs and maybe even have a bridge and, you know, maybe move people. And uh, and so that that's what I think, made the for me the collection cohere but i don't think i was writing them thinking um this will be a collection about hope i think it was when i looked back that i felt that that through line interesting um and a little bit of a convoluted question but you know it's sort of at least in my reading because i'm i'm more familiar with your novels um mm-hmm. this was maybe my first collection and you know it's almost a hallmark that there are a lot of characters. There's a lot of complex interwoven plots and narratives. And that can be, you know, difficult to do in the limited space of a short story. But, you know, you still manage to do that in this collection. And I'm thinking specifically, especially stories like Mr. Voice, where there are multiple generations, um, characters that evolve and, and change, at least to us as readers from our understanding of them. And that's in fewer than 20 pages. And I'm curious, um, as you're approaching these stories, how do, how do characters or the stories that they're in, how do they speak to you and tell you which format is right? You mentioned dating and relationships. How do you know if someone's maybe in it for the long haul or this is maybe just a nice night out? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, you know, you, if you looked back at Beautiful Ruins um, or The Cold Millions, both of the last two novels, there are uh, there are distinct short stories built into those novels. And so in, in some ways the, those were pieces that uh that you know especially with uh, the cold millions there's a there's a story set in 1864 at a ferry that ran in harper's as a short story so they do overlap in some way and sometimes i i get i'll write a short story and i'll be so engaged by that world that i want to continue or i want to find a way to make it fit into the other world um but 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 generally, when I finish a short story, some movement has been completed. We have gone to the town and country. We've seen it. The father is there. Um, and now I have to figure out what that movement means. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that and that movement has sort of completed itself like some like a circle, I suppose, or some other geometric shape. And when you step back and you look and you think that's complete and full, um, a novel just keeps posing questions questions it just keeps opening and uh and that sense of closure when i when i'm in a short story is so pleasing Mm -hmm. to finish a short story and walk away and see it published some of these have taken me six months to write so it's not as if it's a always a short amount of time but it's nice to have this discrete piece of work that you know has finished itself um i've yet to finish a novel that i really felt was finished i you know, they come out and I start reading sentences and immediately editing. You know, I, I think they, they just, um, for me feel, uh, like these lifelong works that you carry along with you. Whereas a story, I feel like I can, I can let go sometimes. I will, um, take a moment and speak on behalf of early career writers and just a little bit when you say six months, it's like not that long. Or not. <laughs> that is, uh, I've got some stories I've been working on for a couple of years now. Oh, I, I do too. And, and you're talking to someone who spent 15 years on a novel. So, right, um, right. The, 
but but one thing you asked about was having stories that that in 20 pages tell mm-hmm. like a whole family story mm-hmm. and i think that's one thing that i learned from the long time it took me to write some of these novels is that the passage of time is a kind of magic within fiction and when i started bringing that to my short stories i mean all i all i had to do was go read alice monroe and see that i could have done it forever but i think i lacked the vision to do that and i think writing beautiful ruins and spending all that time with those characters and when i started beautiful ruins it was a novel about uh, i i knew that one one story would be set in the present day and the other would be set in the 1960s. And so when it began, when I began writing at the present day it was 35 years later, Pasquale goes looking for a woman he met 35 years earlier. And then it was 38 years earlier. And then it was 40 years earlier. And by the time I published the novel, Pasquale goes looking for a woman he met 50 years earlier. And that, that changing scope of the novel and spending those years with those characters um, gave me a, a a real sense of the profundity of the passage of time in fiction, mm-hmm. and and it made me return to some of the writers like Alice Munro who are able to do that. Um, and I just it 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 made me want to try to capture that passage of time and the and the way that it it adds resonance to lives mm-hmm. in short fiction. Mm-hmm. One of the things that you mentioned a moment ago is a you kind of picked up a through line as you were putting together the collection and getting a little more specific with it. I'm curious if how you decide the title of the collection, was that clear from the get go that you would go with Angel of Rome? Did that story speak to you as being the title? How did that process go? Yeah, there were there were there were a couple of different titles at one time there's another story in there called famous actor and a lot of the stories here are about people kind of creating a version of themselves and so for a while i did think famous actors would be a good title um but it it was another really interesting lesson famous actors would be a good title if you'd already read the collection Mm. um if you haven't read the collection what you know does that pull you in or does that make you think it's about actual famous actors or that it's there's this, it felt snarkier in some way mm-hmm. um when i looked at that at that other idea that this is a this is a novel about um people finding hope in unlikely characters from mr voice um find you know this this young girl connecting with uh, a stepfather who seems in the beginning like the worst possible choice to um to the last story, uh, The Way the World Ends, in which uh, a climate scientist finds inspiration from a young student she meets. In each story, I felt like these people were finding this person who rekindled in them some sense that maybe things weren't as awful as we thought. Mm. And the story that does that, I think the most clearly was the title. It was the biggest story also, the novella that kind of anchors the center of the book, The Angel of Rome. And Ronnie Tower, the the television actor who who befriends Nebraska Jack Riegel and um, and teaches him this lesson that he that it's okay to create yourself. Um, that that felt to me like the dominant theme through a lot of these stories. These kind of unlikely angels, and so the Angel of Rome just really felt like it fit. It also I thought was a more uh, uh, a title that that if you hadn't read the collection was probably more appealing. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. And you wrote Angel of Rome. Was that written in collaboration with Eduardo Ballerini? Yeah. Uh, Eduardo and I had talked about he, Eduardo Ballerini, terrific actor um, and, a, and a good writer in his own right. And we had talked about the idea that, that uh, audio books, he, he's narrated a couple of my books, including Beautiful Ruins, for which he did an amazing job. And Eduardo and I had talked about the fact that audio books are sort of an afterthought. And we thought, what if we, what if we wrote one directly to be performed? Mm-hmm. And so we just sort of kicked around ideas. We, we both had a kind of love of Tristevere and Rome. And we both could remember being young men kicking around Europe in uh, leather jackets that didn't fit us staring into restaurant windows. And I, I took sort of those rough details and Eduardo had studied Latin in, in Rome as a young man. So I took those details, created these fictional characters. And then I would send it to Eduardo and he would sort of suggest notes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we did, uh, I happened to be in New York. And so we did a table read of the, of it, almost like a play, mm-hmm. which for a fiction writer who's always looking for new ways to kind of liven up the uh uh you know the creative process to have a really great actor read the dialogue of your characters and read the narration was really thrilling so i took notes and eduardo gave me notes and kind of did a rewrite that way so it 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 was a really fun way to work i i hesitate to tell everyone you know find a great actor to to table read your story because it seems like a bit you know fly to new york and you know, have a great actor table read your story because it's a bit of an indulgence, but Mm. boy, it really opened up that story and made it cinematic for me. That's really interesting. And, you know, we here at Micro, we are obviously Mm -hmm. big fans of stories being read aloud and was really a a treat to hear you at the top of the hour. And that slides perfectly into my next question, which is, can you talk a little bit about the audio version of the book with Eduardo Bellarini and Julia Whalen? And to get your perspective as the author, and you mentioned working on especially the Angel of Rome story in conjunction, essentially in partnership. But I'm curious, when you hear your stories read aloud, how does that affect your perception of it? Does it change anything about it? And, you know, your thoughts generally on hearing your stories read aloud in an audio version? You know, I think uh, probably like a lot of writers, I'm pretty old school. I like the physical book. Um, I, when I'm listening to an audio book, I can't really revel in the sentences. And so I probably like a lot of novelists and story writers, we sort of imagine everyone reads the way we do, you know, that they want to just really slow down and luxuriate in more of those just mm-hmm. Walter metaphors. And uh, mm-hmm. not everyone reads that way. Right. Um, and it really is, it, it is auditory. It is uh, an oral kind of storytelling. When you read, you are, you are reading to yourself um, at, at various levels. You know, we are, we're engaging in the work that way. And so it, I love hearing actors read my stories. The, I had a full cast on the cold millions and to hear an actor like Gary Farmer read a native American character like Jules was just thrilling to hear what he brought to it. Mm. Um, and I think I have, I think originally hearing Eduardo read beautiful ruins really gave me more appreciation for audiobooks than I probably had before and made me, want to think about them as I write mm-hmm. think that some people are experiencing the book this way um, mm-hmm. it doesn't really change what I'm trying to do on the page but I think 
any awareness you have as a fiction writer seeps into the work. Mm. Uh, similarly, I, you know, I wrote some screenplays when I was younger and just introducing yourself to, to a different kind of storytelling. Um, we can be sort of precious about our, you know, our talent and we don't want to infect it with anything commercial or anything, any other mediums. And I just don't think that's any way to work. I think you have to open yourself up to the world and opening myself up to audiobooks meant um, imagining the way someone else would interpret the work, which is what we're doing anyway. We're putting work out there for other people to read and interpret and hear in their own voices. Really interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you maybe got a little spoiled to having Eduardo Ballerini to, be yeah. able to open your eyes on that, but I'm glad you've joined the audio yeah. journey. Yeah. Uh, a question that we're asking a lot of our people that we're interviewing for this series as sort of a unifying question is as you were working, and I understand that these were stories that were written over different periods of time, but were there any books that you maybe kept on the desk next to you? Next to you, were there things that you were reading? Was there a soundtrack that you play when you go to work? What did you, you know, what did you revisit to kind of keep yourself either energized, inspired, or focused on this collection? Yeah, um, all of the above. Uh, and, and I do want, you had mentioned uh, Julia Whalen too, and I do want to say, man, how thrilling it was to have her read half those stories. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, so one thing that I started doing was when I took walks, I started listening to more audiobooks and short stories, um, the New Yorker story series I would listen to instead of just reading them on the page, uh, um, selected shorts sometimes. Um, I, I think I used to be a little more stingy when I was writing about not letting any other voices in. I was, again, so afraid that I was going to contaminate, you know, this, uh, the stagnant pond that is my, that is my brain. Um, and, and so, but just hearing another writer's uh, effects just adds so much. Uh, I have a bunch of craft books that I sort of keep stacked up, um, uh, you know, some, uh, Charles Baxter books and uh, some, you know, various things like that. I hardly ever open them. I think I just need to glance at them mm. and think, just you know, I, right. I should look for some rhyming action here or, you know, it's, um, it's almost just to remind myself that this is a craft that I'm not, that, 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 you know, I'm not wedded to anything in this work that I'm, you know, that this is something I'm trying to, to create. Um, you, the uh, listening, you won't be able to see, but behind me is a bookcase that I use as kind of my working bookcase. So I covered that with short story collections that mm. I love. Mm. And I would just go to them and read stories, um, you know, from writers like Dennis Johnson or Jim Shepard, whose work I love or, uh, and, or uh, Mary Gateskill or, um, uh, Edward P. Jones, I would just pull out a short story collection and read a short story uh, as I was working on it. And the inspiration of that is, um, I think, like a musician, you know, you you get challenged by seeing what other people do and inspired. You try to to match the, the heights that they hit. Um, and and as far as music, uh, I, I usually trust uh, 
Apple to tell me what I like. They uh, they once a week send me my uh, favorites, and I'm always amazed. I'm like, you're right. I did want to hear Tom Waits right now, or uh, I did want to hear that old William Devon song. Be thankful for what you got. So, um, so I'll put on one of those playlists. Uh, a lot of the music that I owned was on CD, and uh, you know, so I might have to go back and uh, you know load up some old grunge hits or something like that to to uh to channel my youth and then if i'm writing about a particular period of time i like to have you know if i'm writing mr voice i do like to have 70s music on in the background um just just to kind of you know make me aware of that moment but the thing i've noticed is if i'm writing well i don't even know i don't even hear Mm -hmm. the music i Mm -hmm. couldn't tell you what songs played um because you're because you become so self-hypnotized by what you're working that flow state yeah yeah Yeah. a little bit of method writing with mr voice there right yeah a little bit of method writing yeah exactly well well, jess i i really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us Uh, be sure to stop by and see jess walter at miami book fair that's November 13th through 20 in beautiful Miami, Florida, and pick up a copy of his latest book, The Angel of Rome and Other Stories, online or at your favorite local bookstore. Jess Walter, thanks again. Thanks so much for stopping by. Yeah, thank you, Drew. Good luck with the writing. 